Oh, yeah. Good morning. Good to see you here this morning. Hope you're having a good day. Uh, I've already had a couple adventures with the Lord today, so I hope you are too. Uh, I just love seeing God pull things off. It can be kind of frustrating in the process. Uh, God often works in just on-time delivery. And he leaves you wondering what's going to happen next for a little while. And I don't know, I don't know the end of this story yet, but I just saw some neat things happen already today. (laughs) So it is good to have you here with us again this morning. And we are going to get going here. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, it's so good to be able to trust in Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness and for the gift of eternal life in Christ and the promise to come and set us free. And Lord, you also promised that your spirit would lead and guide us in all truth. And so we're claiming that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, do we have anybody here that's new? Okay, for you guys, here's a quick overview. For the rest of you, some of you might need it anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, really quick overview. If you know who Babylon, the ch- head of gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay is, you actually know the kings of the north. All right? That's the same as the king of the north in Daniel 11. The final and true king of the north is Jesus Christ. All right? But... We are living in the time of divided Europe, the time of the little horn. That is the role of the king of the north in the time period in which we are living. In Daniel 11, there is two two time periods of conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south. During the divided Greek empire, when we have Seleucids north, Ptolemy south, Jerusalem gets caught in the middle. So the Greek empire splits, Jerusalem's caught in the middle. It becomes a model of what to expect in the split of the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, it splits north and south. Papal-led Christianity north, Islam south. Jerusalem gets caught in the middle. There are three conflicts between the north and the south. The Crusades, Daniel 11, 23 through 28. The Ottoman Empire in the time of the Reformation, 29 to 39. The time of the end, the third and final crisis between Islam and Christianity, verses 40 to 43. It's very quick once it breaks loose. Uh, Now, what we already noticed is not only is it geopolitical in Daniel 11, it is also spiritual from the time of Jesus and the breakup of the Roman Empire. And Jerusalem gets caught in the middle geopolitically. Take a look at where God's Sabbath-keeping followers are. Between the North Sunday, the South Friday, God's people are spiritually caught in the middle everywhere in the world. Interesting how this all plays out. Uh, Daniel 11, it's I- interesting how the what you can track on the map is also happening spiritually. And Daniel 11 is laid out where the geopolitical is a model of what's happening spiritually all over the world. Okay, you can graph their power curves in this way. You have the papacy in this line, and uh, it ends up meeting its destruction at the time of the end, but you have Islam attacking it in the... Arab Islam, they weaken, the Crusades hit, then the Ottomans kick in, they're more powerful. 
They come down. Then you enter the time of the end, and you have a third and final conflict. And right immediately following it, you have a loud cry. Actually, that's what we're going to be getting into because we find Islam is divided three ways in that last conflict in Daniel 11, verses 40 to 43. Oops, I was going to have that one up there. Uh, there are three parts. The part that escapes, the part that is overthrown, a part that escapes, by the way, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Ammon. There are no such countries today. There are only remnants of it. They're all from what's now Western Jordan. But then you have the part, countries that are overthrown, Egypt and many countries, and you notice God is naming names here in Daniel 11. And as we looked at that, remember Egypt is geopolitically the nation of Egypt, radicalizes and ends up going down with many countries, while it also represents spiritually all of radical Islam that is overthrown. Then you have uh, those who follow after. That was Libya and Ethiopia. You have their representation of moderate Islam. Those countries will follow the king of the north and all of moderate Islam will based on signs, wonders, and miracles. Uh, Mary, they both value Mary. There's all kinds of similarities in their backgrounds and their histories and they end up following the papal system. That left us those who escape. And uh, let's take a look now at that group. I told you this is the best part of it all and to me it is the best part of this whole presentation. Because, well, I love Jesus, okay? And when I see Jesus really win big time, I like it. And Edom, Moab, and Ammon is all about Jesus winning big time. And here's what we have. In Daniel 11, 40-43, you have Edom, Moab, and Ammon. They escape. The word for escape is the same Hebrew word that is translated in deli as delivered in Daniel 12.1. Those are the people that are trusting in Jesus Christ, and he delivers them. But it's the same Hebrew word, just a couple of verses apart. So you ought to think linkage here, possibly, okay? At least have the possibility that these people, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, that escape are the same people that escape or are delivered at Jesus' return. Now, in Daniel 12.1, here's what it says. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. We have a parallel statement in Revelation. Here's what it says. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life when they see the beast. All right? Right at the end time scenario in Revelation, you have all the world following the beast. Daniel 11, you have Libya and Ethiopia following the king of the north. Same thing. Revelation. You have two groups of people, those who are following the beast, king of the north, okay? And those who are in the Lamb's book of life. In Daniel, you have those who are following the king of the north and those who escape or are delivered. Edom, Moab, and Ammon escape. They're not overthrown by the king of the north and they do not follow. If they're not following the king of the north and there are only two kinds of people, what does that mean about them? That means they're in the Lamb's book of life. Because there's only two choices. Hi, B. <laughs> I'm glad there are honeybees, by the way. We'd starve to death without them. <laughs> they pollinate everything, or most everything. 
So uh, we have Edom, Moab, and Ammon. There is no country of Edom. There is no country of Ammon. There is no country of Moab anymore. They're only remnants. I like the thought because there's a remnant out of Christianity and now we're talking a remnant out of Islam. And I'm seeing something where they're standing up for Jesus Christ. Now, let's take a look back at an old map. I'm going to come up here for a bit. In case you can't see it, this says Edom right there. That says Moab right there. That says Ammon right there. This is the Davidic kingdom. This is David's kingdom, all right? When Jesus returns, and according to the prophecies of the Old Testament and New Testament, he restores the Davidic kingdom, right? What's on the inside of the Davidic kingdom? Judah and Israel. There's Jerusalem. But Edom, Moab, and Ammon are inside the Davidic kingdom. When Jesus returns and reestablishes the Davidic kingdom, Edom, Moab, and Ammon escape and are delivered. So we have a remnant coming out of Christianity and a remnant coming out of Islam. And together, they make up God's people that are delivered. Oh, now, let's keep going. First Thessalonians. And they shall not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Paul is saying those that are real Christians will escape when Jesus comes, right? Well, Edom, Moab, and Ammon do what? They escape. How do you escape? Hebrews tells us that. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? How do you escape? By trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If Edom, Moab, and Ammon escape, they're doing what? Trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Hey, I'm liking this. How about you? Then there's Joel 2, 28 and following. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions before the coming of the great awesome day of the Lord. So just before Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, there are going to be young men and young women having dreams and visions and old men having dreams. And, ooh, let's keep reading. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just Jews? Oh, he just threw this thing wide open, didn't he? And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. Edom, Moab, and Ammon escape or are delivered. Now, do you believe God cares about the Islamic world? You know that 1040 window that's really hard to reach, right? I will promise you, God is working there. There are people all over the Islamic world that are having dreams and visions of a man in white. His name is Isa, Jesus. And he shows up in dreams and visions and tells them that they need to trust him for their salvation. That he is coming again as priest and king. And these Muslims are trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, believing that he's coming as their deliverer. Now, 
they often use both the Quran and the Bible. They do not call themselves Christians. There's a really good reason most of them don't call themselves Christians. Two good reasons. One, their definition of a Christian is a crusader that follows the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. Whoops. They don't want anything to do with that. They don't think Christians are following the book, the Bible. They're following Isa in the book. But they also use the Quran for a very good reason. For the second reason is, if you say you're a Christian, you're going to get killed. And so they're not Christians. They're followers of Isa and the book. And they use the Quran. And when they're brought up in a mosque or something to defend what they're saying, they quote all kinds of things from the Quran that happen to agree with the scriptures. Are you a Christian? Oh, I'm a follower of Isa. And the book. And the Quran says there are true people of the book. <laughs> okay. They don't have churches. They have houses of prayer. But you know what? Their beliefs are very similar to yours. I don't know if you can unpack the threat that's coming to you in that one or not. Let me open your eyes. Can I have somebody willing to come up here for an illustration? Do you happen to be a believer in the book? Uh, based on your belief in the book, do you eat pork? No? Uh, do you go to church on Sunday or the seventh day? Seventh day. So you are a believer in the book. He's a Christian. Say I'm a Muslim. I too believe the book. I believe in Isa. He believes in Jesus. You believe he's coming back? Yeah. As king and judge and all the rest of it? And deliver? Okay, I believe that too. I can't tell him I believe he's God. Okay, do, do, you, do you believe... You don't believe in eating pork. I don't believe in eating pork. I don't believe in that Sunday thing because it's not in the book. And you don't either. I am a Muslim. He's a Christian. There is a coming conflict between Islam and Christianity. Islam versus Christianity. You either cooperate with papal-led Christianity or you get wiped out. Do you cooperate with them? Do you follow the papal system as the leader of the church? Okay, so you have a Christian who will not follow, and you have a Muslim who will not follow, and Christians hate Muslim, and he agrees with me, and I'm a Muslim. Some of you are starting to get it. He will now become persecuted because he's like that Muslim. I will just tell you this. If you are a Christian and you hate Muslims, you will reap what you sow. You cannot hate anybody if you're truly a Christian. Yep, you can head on back. I just want you to catch. This is not new. During the Reformation, there were some of the reformers that were burned at the stake for saying that some of the Muslims would listen to the gospel faster than some of the, quote, Christians would. And they were burned at the stake for that. I tell you, there's a time coming when it will be very risky to be 
sharing the same things that the Muslim remnant is sharing. Now, get this. If you have a conflict between radical Islam and Christianity, and Christianity, quote, takes out radical Islam, what is now going to stop all these Muslim believers from putting it on full bore to share the gospel? Do you remember what happened in the Soviet Union when communism fell? Remember an explosion of evangelism? You have seen nothing yet as what you are about to see for a very short time right at the end of the third conflict between Islam and Christianity. have no question about it and I'm going to show you why from the prophecy now uh, let's let's keep going here for a bit we have the king of the north papal system and its allies are in control of the glorious land now I've told you that it's geopolitical and spiritual right king of the north geopolitical spiritual king of the south geopolitical and spiritual Israel there's the land of Israel and the people of Israel, according to the New Testament, anyone who accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Watch this. During the Crusades, the papacy holds Jerusalem at the same time they control the Christian church. During the Ottoman Empire, they lose control of Jerusalem, and because of the Reformation, they lose control of the church spiritually. When they literally, at the time of the end, control Jerusalem, it's at the same time they spiritually control the church again when all the world follows the king of the north or the beast. Depends on if you're talking Revelation or Daniel terminology here. I want you to notice that whatever happens to Jerusalem is the model of what's happening spiritually everywhere. It's been this way for 14 centuries. Now, Seventh-day Adventists have been ignoring Jerusalem in our prophetic understanding. The rest of the evangelical world is focusing on Jerusalem. We've been focusing on the spiritual. They've been focusing on the literal. Well, the spiritual is the main focus, but because we've ignored the literal, we have lost the stepping stone to move them over to the spiritual. It's time for us to realize that the literal has its place, but now I can come up to an evangelical Christian and say, you've been focusing on Jerusalem. Good. Now let's move on to the next step, the real issue, which is what's going on spiritually. Which is more important? A model rocket if I want to go to the moon or an Apollo rocket that's really huge? Which would you rather have if you're an astronaut, the model or the real thing? But the evangelical world is focused on Jerusalem. And we have ignored that. We've lost the connecting. Now, get this. When Jesus came the first time, they were focused on the geopolitical, and they missed their spiritual king. Today's evangelical world is focusing on the geopolitical, and they're missing the spiritual. It's a repeat of what happened in Jesus' day. We need to acknowledge the literal geopolitical role but then move it to the spiritual Daniel 
does a masterful job of doing exactly that. And by the way, Daniel 11, according to 12.4, is the prophecy for the end time. Again, I don't make that stuff up. That's what it says. So this is really important. Now, people are always asking me, how will Islam attack the Christian world, papal-led Christianity? I could come up with so many different scenarios on that one. It could be a nuclear hit. It could be like Ramsey Yosef wanted to do uh, an attack against the papacy. It might be a huge event or it might be a little event. It could just be a little event that's the last straw that breaks the camel's back. If I was in Iran and I had a nuclear weapon, I know how I'd do it. I would go down the southern Iran and I'd launch my longest range missile right towards Jerusalem. You heard me say towards Jerusalem, not at. Because the trajectory would take it right over Jerusalem, over the Mediterranean, come down in central Italy. If it gets shot down on, on, down on the way over Jerusalem, hey, I've sent the world into chaos. If they miss it going over Jerusalem and it comes down in central Italy, I'm really going to send the world into chaos. And since some of the leaders there want to send the world into chaos, I mean, that's just the way I'd do it if I was them. Uh, you can't miss the chaos if you do it. But that's just one of many ways. I don't know how and I don't know when the prophecy doesn't tell us that. It just says the king of the south finally does something that triggers it. And friends, all that really has to happen is the media and the Christian world to latch on to one simple point. There is a Christian that's dying every five minutes in this world because they're Christian, and most of them are killed by Muslims. If that one was pushed all over the world in the media, there would be an uproar. But it doesn't, because the media doesn't like Christians, and they don't care, by and large. But friends, I think there's a backlash coming in the U.S. I think the pendulum's going to swing so far liberal that it's going to turn around. That's just my guess, by the way. And it's going to swing back and go so far conservative and make this a Christian nation. By the way, whose definition of Christian do you want to rule? Everybody says their definition is God's definition. Every time there has been Christianity by force, it's been bad news. And, friends, we have huge issues coming up. The next election is probably going to be really wild. The whole health care thing. Uh, promises were that all our health care premiums were going to go down. They're going up by 40 or more percent on every state that's doing evaluations on it. And it's just falling apart. It, you've got... The IRS, you've got Benghazi, you've got all kinds of stuff that's going on. And, yeah, the, and, and the whole snooping idea. By the way, I'd love to see what kind of file I have. 
if they're watching all the emails and they're talking about people who are watching people who talk about terrorism and all that kind of stuff, and I have a website that always comes up on page one of Google on Islam and Christianity, <laughs> and I've got all kinds of people talking to me, including some radicals, Muslims, uh, that don't mind talking about people like me being charcoal for the fires of hell. And I have dialogue with all that kind. I just love to see what my file looks like. <laughs> oh, well. By the way, I'm not worried. I don't believe it's right, all the stuff that they're doing. It's beyond what's constitutional. But I'm not worried. Because if God doesn't want them to stop me, they won't. At the same time, if God wants to make it a really big story, he will, whatever happens. And so, who knows? So how will it happen? I'm not sure. Will it be the political left or the political right that does it? I can come up with scenarios both ways. And I'm kind of pessimistic from studying history. Here's what I know. In Jesus' day, there's only one thing the political left and the political right, or the religious left and the religious right, the Sadducees and the Pharisees could agree on. And that was to do, do the wrong thing and kill Jesus. And I've got a sneaking suspicion that ultimately when this goes into the third and final holy war, it will be the political left and the political right actually coming together to do the wrong thing. That's just the way history tends to carry it out. Okay. Well, we talked a little bit about that already, so let's just keep going. What comes next after the papacy in the U.S. and its allies, NATO, were in control? Papal-led Christianity is what I call it. That's verses 44 and 45. These are the last moments of the King of the North and its alliance. It comes to its end at the end of verse 45. Here's what it says. But news from the east and news from the north shall trouble him. The King of the North just beat radical Islam. Moderate Islam is following them. But there's that little group, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, that won't follow and weren't taken out. Keep that in mind. And it goes on. News from the east, news from the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate. Well, he just took down radical Islam. Who's left? Let's keep going. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. By the way, depends on how you read the Hebrew, that's either in or near Jerusalem. Which one is it? I just go with in or near. Can't miss that way. The Hebrew could go either way. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Well, the king of the north goes down. When does the beast power go down? When Jesus comes. So it goes right up until <laughs> Jesus takes over as the next king of the north, but the true one. All right. What's the news from the east? Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 9. A message comes from the east, fills the temple with glory and the earth with glory, and it's a message to get away from abominations and come back to the true worship of God. A message from the east. Revelation 7, 2 and 3. Uh, the sealing message, the last warning message to the world, comes from the east. The direction of Jesus' return is from the east. The loud cry of Revelation 1 through 8 doesn't say which direction it's from, but it fills the earth with glory, just like Ezekiel does, and it's a message to get away from the abominations and the immorality and turn back to God. Same message as Ezekiel. Ah, interesting. Now, what's news from the north? 
Ezekiel 44, 4 through 6. And it tells us that there is a message of judgment and warning to get away from abominations. Same theme, same message. And according to Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, God or Jesus is the true king of the north. On the sides of the north. Satan tries to take the throne place of God on the sides of the north. That's Jerusalem, by the way. And where does Jesus put his throne at the end of the thousand years? Just outside Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives. And it was going to be one king after another, kingdoms of the north, that put their throne at the gates of Jerusalem, according to Jeremiah, for the kings of the north. All these things line up. Scripture is fulfilled by all of it. Daniel 11 is awesome for putting it together. And so, just before the destruction of the king of the north, the beast, the papal system, whatever, God sends a final warning message to the world to get away from the king of the north and all of its abominations. We call it the loud cry based on Revelation 18. In Daniel 11, it's tidings from the east and tidings from the north. So where does it land in here? Right after the third conflict, we have tidings from the east and the north in Daniel, loud cry in Revelation. Then you're going to have the final events, the tribulation or plagues, happen right after that loud warning message. Go back to the map for a moment. In Revelation 18, when it talks about the loud cry, which is the same as the tidings, okay? Same point in the prophecy, same point in the flow. The loud cry, Revelation 18, verse 4, involves a statement that says, Come out of her, my people. That is a remnant coming out of papal-led Christianity, correct? God said he has the people in there. Don't ever look at Roman Catholics if you're not a Roman Catholic and think they're not God's people. God said he has a people in there. If God says he has a people in there, what do you think? He does, right? There are true legitimate Christians, according to God's own word, within that group. I disagree with the teachings of the system. I just disagree with the human rights violations of the system. But there are people in there that are God's people. God said so. But if the papal system is the king of the north and there's a remnant coming out of them, they would be coming from the north, right? So you have a remnant from the north. Islam has a remnant. Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Take a look at the map. Which direction of Jerusalem? They're east. Catch this. In Daniel, the last warning message comes from the north and the... Edom, Moab, and Ammon are east. And the remnant out of the papal Christianity is the north. God's remnant out of Christianity and out of Islam stand together and together they share the loud cry message. Tidings from the east and tidings from the north and it gets the papal system mad. We've took down radical Islam. Now, hey, the Hindus joined us in that. The, everybody else has joined us in that. Who do you think you are to stand in our faces and tell us we are not following Jesus in the Bible. Get out of our sight. They become furious. Take a look at what it says. But news from the east and news from the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. 
He's going after that remnant out of Islam and Christianity. Revelation 13 describes it in calling it the mark of the beast. Everybody either accepts the papal system or they are attacked. This is exactly the same as Revelation 13. Now take a look at this. Revelation 12, 12. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Once you hit the third conflict between Islam and Christianity, what do you think the devil knows? It says it's going to be like a whirlwind. Duh. That means not much time left. He hits that point. He knows he has a short time. And what will he be doing to those who are following God's word and keeping the commandments and having the faith of Jesus? He's going to go out with great fury to attack them. That's what it says here in Revelation 12. This is matching Daniel 11 very clearly. Revelation 13, mark of the beast imagery. He deceives by those signs which was granted to do in the sight of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So if I gave you a choice, you can either choose to be killed or annihilated. Which would you choose? Sounds very similar to me, right? So Revelation says, you follow the beast or you get killed. Daniel says, you follow the king of the north or you get annihilated. Same point in the flow of the prophecy, okay? You can tell they're very parallel here, right? The next part of it. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. If you can't buy or sell, somebody wipes out your bank account and your job and everything else, would you think somebody was out to destroy you? Daniel, it's destroy. Revelation, you can't buy and sell. Daniel, it's annihilate. Revelation, it's killed. Do you see a parallel going here? Yeah. And so when you see very short cryptic, which is normal for Daniel, that... The king of the north is going to be filled with fury, go out to destroy and annihilate. That's the same as the Revelation 13 scenario that you're very comfortable with and know very well. That's where you are in the flow. But Daniel 11 is laying it down in sequential order in the order that they happen. So, in Revelation, everybody has to accept the seal of God or the mark of the beast. Same thing in Daniel. You're either delivered or you're with the king of the north. Now, what is the sign or seal? It's the Sabbath. Now, friends, I want you to look carefully at this statement. I'm going to show you a New Testament and an Old Testament one. Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who... Can you make yourself holy? I want you to understand something. The Sabbath is not anything to do with salvation by your works. The Sabbath is all about God making you holy. You cannot do that. I cannot do that. The only way I can be made holy is to let Jesus cleanse me. So the Sabbath is a memorial about what Jesus does. I can find that over and over in the Old Testament. I also find it in the New Testament. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. 
Do I believe in salvation by works? I absolutely do. Salvation by God's works, not mine. Now get this. To accept God's work, I have to rest from my works. I don't trust them. I let my works go. I let it rest. Give it a rest. You've heard somebody say that. Drop it, right? And accept God's works. When I get rid of my works and trust in God's work, am I now holy, made sanctified? Yes. I have been purified. Ah, the Sabbath is all about trusting God, not myself. People say, oh, but you keep the Sabbath. That proves that you're trying to earn your works. No, the Bible says if I keep the Sabbath, it is a sign that I'm trusting in His works, not my works. Let me ask this. If my boss was to tell me, I've got to be out on the construction site on Saturday morning or I'm fired. I used to be a contractor. I've either got to be on the construction site on Saturday morning or I'm fired. If I have faith in God and he says, rest, don't go. What am I going to do? Am I going to do what my boss says or am I going to do what God says if I have trust in God? I'm going to do what God says. Because I believe he can take care of my past, forgive me. He can take care of my present and my future. I have faith in him. Right? Now, suppose my boss tells me that and I know I have bills. I know my family needs food. So I say, I have to be there Saturday morning. Who am I trusting now? Did you just catch how the Sabbath is a sign of who I'm trusting? Am I trusting God or am I trusting myself? Now, it is possible for a Sabbath keeper to think they're earning their way to salvation through Sabbath keeping, and that will lead you to a dead-end street. The only legitimate reason to be keeping the Sabbath that really works is because you're trusting Jesus Christ. And it's all his problem. Lord, it's your life. I gave it to you. So you've got to take care of it. I trust you. The Sabbath is a sign of that we're trusting Jesus for our salvation. The king of the north did not want to be called Jewish. But you know what the Bible says? If I trust Jesus for my salvation, I am now an Israelite. Ephesians chapter 2. They didn't want to be Israelites, so they set up their own day. The king of the south didn't want to be Israelites, so they set up their own day. But if I trust Jesus, I'm an Israelite and he's my king. Wow. You talk about Sunday laws. Adventist, I grew up as an Adventist home and I heard about Sunday laws all the time. But there weren't very many really good reasons given why there would be Sunday laws. I'm going to give you a very good reason. In a conflict between Islam and Christianity, are you on the Christian Sunday side or the Muslim Friday side? And the day of worship is your indicator. And the moderate Muslims said, fine, we'll cooperate with Sunday worship. The radicals won't. But there are a group of people who get caught in the coming out of Islam and Christianity who will not go along. Stage one is anti-Islam. Stage two is those people who are 
that had been stuck in the middle and wouldn't follow. The most logical reason for Sunday laws. Are you Christian or Muslim in a holy war? And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of Christians that wouldn't otherwise have supported it, including a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who hate Muslims, will be supportive of it. Because it's the patriotic thing to do. Be careful. You have Sabbath right in the middle. First they go after Friday, and then they go after Sabbath. First it's radical Islam in Daniel 11. Then when tidings, the last warning message is given, he turns and destroys, annihilates, or destroys many. Yeah. There you have it. Is this just a Seventh-day Adventist thing about the Sabbath? I ask people, take a close look from the Bible. In a public seminar, I spend a whole presentation on what is uh, this Mark of the Beast thing. Catholic Church claims it's their authority that changed the day of worship from the seventh day to the first day. Where did the idea come from that at the end time that there would be Sunday laws and Sunday would be a mark of papal authority in leading Christianity? Is that just a Seventh-day Adventist thing? No, friends. 1657, over 200 years before there was a Seventh-day Adventist church, a book written by Thomas Till, minister of the gospel. Here's what it says. The Seventh-day Sabbath sought out and celebrated. This is the cover of the book. Sought out and celebrated. Or the saints' last design upon the man of sin with the advance of God's first institution to its primitive perfection being a clear discovery of the black character in the head of the little horn, Daniel 7.25 the change of times and laws with the Christian's glorious conquest over the mark of the beast and the recovery of the long-slighted seventh day to its ancient glory wherein Mr. Aspinwall may receive full answer to his late peace against the Sabbath. 200 years before this, the Adventist church, there's a clear understanding prophetically that the Sabbath at the end will be an issue. Are you really following the God of creation and trusting him or are you trusting a human system in place of the God of creation? It's a little over 150 pages long, the book is. You can buy it for around $18,000. Or you can go to my website and read the PDF version for free. I would suggest the latter. And uh, so t you can take a look at it. If you do, just remember... Uh, look at right below or you see where it says saints it starts and ends with an S but then look at the next word it looks like laughed that's last they can write an S that looks like an S or they can write an S that looks like an F just remember in old English lots of what looks like an F are actually S's if you read the book otherwise you will confuse yourself to no end all right, so L-A-S-T, design, D-E, it's not F-I-N-G, it's S-I-N-G, okay? So when you read Old English, just keep that in mind. Then we go into the really neat part of the prophecy, Daniel 12, 1 through 4, which is all about deliverance. Remember, in the struggle in verses 1 through 45, Jesus dies right in the middle in verse 22 to deliver his people. Daniel 12, 1 through 3 is all about how Jesus delivers his people. So God's people get caught in the middle with Jesus in the conflict, and then Jesus rescues his people that were caught in the middle. 
Daniel 12, 1 through 4. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, when we hit Daniel 12.1, what we have here is an overlap. When Jesus stands up... Oh, by the way, let me share this. Michael is Jesus Christ. A whole bunch of evangelicals would think you just lost your Christianity if you believe Michael is Jesus Christ. They, that proves that they don't know their church history very well. Nor do they know their scriptures very well. Number one, I can prove scripturally that Jesus is Michael. By the way, Michael means one who is like God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the... Gotcha. There's a whole bunch of other scriptural proof. Church history is that the early church taught that Michael is Jesus Christ. The reformers taught that Michael is Jesus Christ. If you have somebody who doubts that, here's the fastest way to prove it. Tell them to go look in the Geneva Study Bible, John Calvin, all right? Reformer. Go to John Calvin's book, the Geneva Study Bible, Daniel 12.1, where it talks about Michael standing up. Look down in the notes, and he will tell you that Michael is Jesus Christ. That was standard, reformer, standard, uh, early church teaching. It was only the papacy who changed it in the 7th century to make Michael just be an angel. The papacy changes all kinds of stuff, friends. So, Jesus stands up. I want you to notice something. In Daniel 11, the dashes off this side are from Daniel 11. The dashes off the right side are from Daniel 12. We have tidings and anger. But then we have Jesus standing up, and then there's a time of trouble like there never was. In Revelation, that's the plagues. And then the king of the north comes to its end, and Jesus delivers. How do I know there's an overlap? It says, starts out by saying, at that time, and all the way through verse 2, it keeps referring back to the at that time. At what time? While the king of the north is going down, the counterfeit king of the north, here's what the real king of the north, Jesus, is doing to take him down. But Daniel always takes the current king of the north, and then he makes a clean break, goes to the new one, and never looks back. So what about when he has overlapping things? Well, he follows his pattern. He talks about the old king of the north, brings it to its end, verse 45. Then he talks about the new king of the north, and in the process he says, oh yeah, by the way, it's at the same time. And at that time. He lets you know it's an overlap. It's very sequential. And when he puts this overlap in, he puts a clue in there to tell you it's overlapping at that time. Again, he's very literal and means what he says. And so we have this outline of the at that time, the overlaps that come through. So we have the third conflict. We have the loud cry. Then Michael, Jesus, stands up. It ends the judgment. And you have the seven last plagues that follow immediately afterwards. Uh, what does it mean when Michael stands up? 
Well, it could mean if you stood up, you're done with something, you were done with the meal and you got up, or somebody was beating up on your kids and you got up to defend them, right? You got upset. Well, Jesus is both. He's done with the judgment and the counterfeit king of the north is beating up on his kids. And he's coming to help. By the way, if Jesus shows up to help his kids, you better be one of God's kids, not one of them beating up on his kids. Okay? That is really, you want to make clear which side you're on on that one. And uh, so I want you to notice the judgment starts 1844 when the court is seated according to chapter 7 and 8 to judge the little horned beast and cleanse the heavenly sanctuary from sin. The judgment ends when Jesus stands up in 12. It starts when it's seated. It ends when he stands up. Does that make sense? Now, the judge is Jesus. The accuser is Satan. And I don't have time to get into this, but I've got a whole hour on one of my 10-hour seminars. The defense attorney you have a choice. You can let your record defend itself or you can let Jesus be your defense attorney. I suggest you let Jesus do it. Uh, you can uh, also be, you know, the defendant, defending yourself. I suggest you let Jesus' record take your place. The law is the Ten Commandments, and by the way, the wages of sin is you cannot earn eternal life, but you have earned death. Okay? Be careful about asking for what you deserve. The result is reward or punishment for eternity. It starts in 1844, stops just before the plagues. And friends, I want you to notice something. This is fabulously good news. How is it good news? If you were to go into court and the judge happened to be your best friend. And the judge, who is your best friend, says, you know what, Tim, you've got a lousy record. Why don't you let me switch records. I'll put my record in in place of yours, Tim, and I've never had a fa failure. I have a perfect record. Okay. Oh, by the way, don't defend yourself. I'd be happy to defend you. Did you just notice this is a rigged court? <laughs> my best friend Jesus is the judge. He's on trial in my place, and he's defending me. If you went into an earthly court, and the judge was your attorney and he swapped records and put his record in in place of mine could I lose get this the judgment is the gospel if you're trusting Jesus Christ you can not lose in the heavenly court if you're trusting yourself you cannot win got it is that not the gospel the judgment is excellent news I am looking forward to getting sentenced to eternal life with Jesus Christ. It's a sentence I want to bear for eternity. Now, I want you to tell you it's even better. Because when Jesus comes, he's going to look at me or he's going to look at you and say, Oh, wow, look at this record. I'd love to spend eternity with you. And I'm going to look at him and say, Jesus, you and I both know. <laughs> If it wasn't for what you just did, that record would be totally different. I will love you and serve you forever. You don't know. I don't think very many of you know how good that record is. You see, it's better than Jesus' record. Here's why. Remember Jesus said that his disciples would do greater things than he's done? Have you ever wondered about that for yourself? How you've been doing greater things than Jesus? In his record, you have. Here's why. 
He cleanses you of your sins and puts his record in place of yours. You now start out with his record, right? Then he pours out the Holy Spirit in your life to do things to help other people. That's on top of everything Jesus ever did. So now, according to the books of heaven, your record is better than his. And when he comes, he's just going, what a wonderful person! Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) It's never about me. It's all about what Jesus and the Holy Spirit have done for me. Don't miss how good Jesus is. And he rewards us as if it was what we had done. Can you handle spending eternity with a guy like that? And so many of our people have come to the conclusion that this pre-advent judgment is some scary thing. It's only scary if you're not trusting him. If you're trusting him, it's the best news in the world, in the universe. Don't get sidetracked by thinking it's scary. It's awesome. So you have Jesus standing up, and then what comes next? Seven last plagues. Uh, Time of trouble such as never was, followed by deliverance. You look at the Exodus, chapters 5 through 12. You had ten plagues, followed by... Unfortunately, most of evangelical Christians says there's deliverance, followed by plagues. They're flopping it. However, in Revelation, you have plagues followed by deliverance. That's the biblical model. And friends, God is very consistent. Haven't you noticed that through Daniel 11 and all everything? He's consistent. He really is. And so, oh, by the way, let me just share, if you have questions about the seven-year tribulation and all that kind of stuff, People are constantly asking me, Tim, is it pre-trib or post-trib in public seminars? I smile and I say, when we get to that part of Daniel 11, we'll explain it. I, in Baker, you're from Baker, right? I had a guy in Baker, Oregon. The first time I did a full-on Daniel 11 seminar in 10 days. And he walks up to me, second or third seminar, he says, are you pre-trib or post-trib? I said, well... This is Daniel 11, and it's chronological. We'll talk about it when we get there. I said, I suggest you just read ahead and start studying it for yourself. He came back the next night. He said, I've been looking ahead, and I don't see how a seven-year tribulation fits into Daniel 11. I said, keep studying. We'll talk about it when we get there. And uh, he kept studying. And when I got there, if you want to see some ways to answer that question go to our seminar number eight on our website or you can buy the 10 part or it's in the book. But what we do is we just lay down what the Reformers taught, which is historicism. And most Seventh-day Adventists believe what the Reformers taught, by the way. It's not new to Seventh-day Adventists. We're just the last of the Reformers left. The Reformation has switched. The papacy in the face of the Reformation put out something called the Counter-Reformation. And now almost all Christians, evangelical Christians, are teaching the papal counter-reformation teachings. It's called futurism. So I lay out what the historicists taught, the reformers, and what is taught today. And we lay one verse down after another and ask which one fits. And friends, there's only one that it fits. By the way, in Revelation you have a false prophet. It does exactly the same as the beast with lamb-like horns. It's one and the same. 
It is not Islam, like a lot of evangelicals want to tell you it is. However, if you were teaching a false prophetic doctrine or teaching, what would you be, a true prophet or a... Christians out of the United States are the leaders in teaching a seven-year tribulation. And friends, if you believe in a seven-year trib, I challenge you to prayerfully go to number eight in our seminar and listen to it. And then ask your question, does it match scripture? If it doesn't match scripture, it's not true prophecy. It's a false prophet. That said, continuing... In Daniel 12, God's people are delivered. We have two resurrections. Revelation has two resurrections, a good one and a bad one, just like Daniel. They're a thousand years apart. We get to talk about the millennium. We get to talk about the destruction of the wicked, the resurrection of condemnation, the second death. And then we get to talk about God's people living with him forever and ever. And friends, I can tell you that's a prophecy seminar unlike you've typically heard in the Adventist church. You probably understood that just from listening to this, right? But it reaches the community better. Seventh-day Adventists have been stranded on Daniel 7 and 8 for 150 years or longer. Uh, here's my point on that. Daniel 7 and 8 were about when the judgment was seated, the beginning, 1844. How many people out there on the street really care about 1844? If you haven't noticed, a lot of Seventh-day Adventists don't really care about 1844 either. It's ancient history, and remember, not very many people raised their hands that loved history. However, most people care about their future, right? I want you to notice, the prophecy that is about for the end time, Daniel 11, ending in 12.3, and it says it's, we understood at the end time, doesn't talk about the beginning of the judgment. It focuses on when Michael stands up in the deliverance. It's the end of the judgment. Now, friends, which prophecy do you think is going to reach our world to get better today? The one about the beginning of the judgment, 1844, or the one about the end of the judgment, right at the end of a conflict with Islam? Aha! Get the idea? It's time for us to share present truth, which is Daniel 11. It doesn't mean Daniel 7 and 8 were wrong. We're right on on that one. It's just time to take the next step and present the prophecy for this time period. That's all. It doesn't do away with the other one. It just builds on it. It's time to move on. Now, Adventists are consistently asking me, what about Ellen White and Daniel 11? I don't even talk about that in the 10-hour seminar. Besides, I didn't get my understanding of Daniel 11 from Ellen White. Really simple reason. How many of you have looked into the Ellen White comments to find out what she says about Daniel 11? How long does it take? About a minute. She doesn't. Very little. Friends, the end time message is not based on Ellen White. It's based on... Think about this. If Ellen White would have explained Daniel 11 and it's the end time message, the world would just be saying, you're just following that... Ellen White person. But because she never explained it, it forces you to teach the last prophetic message from... Do you see the genius in that one? But once you understand what the word is saying, all of a sudden, some of Ellen White's comments go, oh, wow. 
Let's take a look at what she actually does say. Some people have told me if Ellen White did not explain a future conflict between Islam and Christianity, it cannot be true. Oh, really? There are people in print attacking me on that, saying that. Uh, they missed something. Here's what Ellen White had to say in Manuscript 176, 1899. The time has come for Daniel to stand in his lot. The time has come for the light given him to go to the world as never before. If those for whom the Lord has done so much will walk in the light, their knowledge of Christ and the prophecies relating to him will be greatly increased as they near the close of this earth's history. Oh, if she thought God had revealed everything to her, would she have said that? No. But whatever you find in Daniel as you near the end of earth's history is also going to be added knowledge about Christ and his ministry. One of the com we get two comments consistently on our presentations. Number one, this makes more sense than anything I've ever heard before. Number two, they're amazed at how Jesus is woven into it. But that's just trying to follow accurately what Daniel's doing. It does exactly what she said. I find that amazing. By the way, if you disagree with me, feel free to talk to me because I have lots of friends who don't agree with me. If you love Jesus Christ, I still will count you as somebody that's likely going to be riding a cloud on the way to heaven side by side if you disagree with me on Daniel 11. So feel free to talk. I will passionately try and get you to reconsider. But I am not the Holy Spirit, and I'm not your judge, and you're not mine. Okay? Ellen White, statements on Daniel 11. The most clear statement, I believe, is found in Volume 9 of the Testimonies, pages 11 to 17. It's an amazing chapter. Um, it's called The Last Crisis. Let's take a look at what she says. The agencies of evil are combining their forces and consolidating. They are strengthening for the last great crisis. Great changes are soon to take place in our world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. Daniel 11, verse 40, and it will be like a... Believe it or not, this is the chapter that she talks about Daniel 11. She introduces it the same way that the time of the end is introduced in Daniel 11. But if you don't know Daniel 11, you're going to miss this stuff. Now, I'm sharing comments in sequential order that they come in this chapter. All right? I have the suspicion that Ellen White's comments were just like Daniel 11. They're recorded in order. So you have this comment, just like in Daniel 11, it's going to be rapid ones. Then she talks about buildings being built to the glory of men and not to the glory of God, buildings in New York City. Here's her next comment. The scene that next passed before me was an alarm of fire. Men looked at the lofty and supposedly fireproof buildings and said they are perfectly safe, but these buildings were consumed as if made of pitch. The fire engines could do nothing to stay the destruction. The firemen were unable to operate the engines. To me, the greatest fulfillment from the time she wrote that until today has been September 11, 2001. The World Trade Center coming down, both towers. Uh, hey, skyscrapers don't come down in a fire, do they? Those did. The fire engines could not be operated, according to Ellen White. 
They were lined up on the streets and destroyed. And over 350 firemen did not go home. Never went home. Friends, those firemen had taken an oath that they would risk their lives to defend lives and and property. And over 350 of them died that day fulfilling their oath. We have a greater oath. Not to save lives just for this lifetime, but to save lives for eternity. Are you willing to lay it all on the line for Jesus Christ? Those firemen were for an earthly life. We should be more willing for eternal life. Let them be an example for you and go beyond what they did. So yeah, to me, if that is not a fulfillment of what she said, there is a greater fulfillment coming. And there may be. But if it's chronological, take a look at what comes next. There are not many, even among our educators and statesmen, who comprehend the causes that underlie the present state of society. Those who hold the reins of government are not able to solve the problems of moral corruption, poverty and pauperism, and increasing crime. Have you noticed those kind of things are getting worse? Yeah. Pauperism. Most of you probably aren't very familiar with that word. Pauperism is when people rely on somebody else to take care of them. 2008, in a matter of a few days, Wall Street became a pauper to the government because they were too big to fail. And they cleaned out the taxpayer in that event. And now, there are more people taking money from the government than contributing to the government. The majority of people in America have become paupers. Let's see, when did this economic chaos start? Do you remember September 11, 2001? What was one of the first things they did? wasn't really hard to do, close the, the markets because they're in New York City. They stayed closed for several days. And when they opened, was the stock market more volatile or less volatile? It took off. And then it's going ever since, right? It's been in chaos since. Continuing. They are struggling in vain to place business operations on a more secure basis. That's been the story ever since those buildings went down. Not working well. If men could give more heed to the teachings yeah, 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 of God's word, they would find a solution of the problems that perplex them. Friends, don't live in debt. It's time to be out of debt. It really is. Then she just throws this one in there. The world is stirred with the spirit of war. The prophecy of the what? 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecy will take place. Oh, wow. It's hitting just as she described. But nobody picked it up because nobody was understanding Daniel 11. Then she says this one in volume one of the testimonies. I was shown the inhabitants of the earth in the utmost confusion. War, bloodshed, privation, want and famine and pestilence were abroad in the land. As these things surrounded God's people, they began to press together. Basically, war and troubled times actually got people's... the attention of God's people and they quit messing around and did what they were supposed to do. She wrote that right before the Civil War. Since 
including the Civil War, what war has got God's people's attention and they actually did what they were supposed to do? None of them have yet. So it's still not fulfilled. Suffering, perplexity, and privation caused reason to resume its throne. Do you hear what she's saying about us? We're not very reasonable. Yeah, that's true. There seemed to be a little time of peace. You have this time of war that gets everybody's attention. There's a short time of peace. Once more the inhabitants of the earth were presented before me. And again, everything was in utmost confusion, strife, war, and bloodshed. Famine and pestilence raged everywhere. Other nations were engaged in this war and confusion. And then men's hearts failed them for fear. When do men's hearts really fail them for fear? They're so scared they dive into the rocks and the caves during the worst earthquakes in earth's history. That's when Jesus is coming. By the way, I'm a caver. Where's the last place I want to be during an earthquake? Many a time as I'm going underground, I'm saying, hey, Lord, how about no earthquakes today? Because one of the biggest caves, 18 miles of passages that I go into, is on the New Madrid fault line. And it's had 8.0 earthquakes there. (laughs) I do not want to be underground during one of those. But catch this. A time of war, third conflict with Islam, a time of peace where God's people do his work, And then another time of war. Ever heard of the Armageddon? Which is primarily spiritual, but real people get killed during that time. A time of war. God's people do the work. And another conflict. And perplexity. The plagues. And the battle of Armageddon. It fits exactly. I want you to notice something. God is all about getting everyone's attention, right? You have a worldwide conflict between Islam and Christianity, and all the world seems to be watching Islam conflict already, right? You have a final war, and Egypt does what Egypt says, radicalizes and gets overthrown along with several other countries. Libya and Ethiopia does what the Bible says it's going to do. They side with the king of the north, papal-led Christianity. And all the world is going, oh, wow, the prophecy's been fulfilled exactly as it said. And then there's this little group of people out of Islam and Christianity that share a final warning and they will try and wipe them out and God steps in and defends them. He gets the world's attention, pours out the Holy Spirit. When everybody makes their decision, he says, that's it, the judgment's over. And he starts his deliverance. It fits exactly on Daniel 11. Ellen White, again, we are standing on the the testimonies of ministers. We are standing on the threshold of great and solemn events. Many of the prophecies are about to be fulfilled in what? Quick succession. Every element of power is about to be set to work. Past history will be repeated. Let's see, has there been a past history of conflict between Islam and Christianity? Old controversies will be aroused to new life. And peril will be set God's people on every side. God's people get caught in the... Oh, wow. Intensity is taking hold of the human family. It's permeating everything upon the earth. Volume 9 of the Testimonies. In a special sense, she said, Seventh-day Adventists were called to share a prophetic message with the world. My quick question is, how well are we doing it? Adventists have been backing off sharing prophecy. Adventist church after Adventist church says, we don't present prophecy anymore. The world doesn't care. I say, whoa, yes they do. We just need to change how we're doing it. Let's move from Daniel 7 and 8 to Daniel 11, and they'll listen. I can show you with a track record that they listen. I just got an email. There's this Methodist guy. He's memorized from online. He goes into his Methodist church every week, 
and he's by memory in his Sunday school class going over all these truths one after another. Almost everywhere I go, I get a Sunday-keeping pastor who listens. And they're trying to figure out how to put it in practice in their churches. Something is getting set up. Page 20. Are we to wait until everything is fulfilled before we say something? She says, God forbid, have faith in God's word. Speak up before it's history. The Review and Herald takes two years to go from an accepted manuscript to book in hand. When they accepted my manuscript, I said, before I sign this contract, I want an agreement. This was in May. I want the book out in August. Takes them two years. I'm asking for a couple of months. I said, I do not want it to be history by the time you print it. They agreed. The administration agreed. The editors and the people in the press said it can't be done, but the administration said it can be. August 1st, we had book in hand. Uh, it's not time to keep waiting, folks. Page 28, in Visions of the Night, balls of fire come in and consume mansions, and people said, we didn't know, and she hears Adventist voices saying, we knew, we just didn't know it'd be so soon. And then those people say, if you knew, why didn't you tell us? Friends, if we're sitting on a prophetic message and we don't share it, we're guilty of not sharing it. And you're going to feel really bad when somebody comes in and says, why didn't you tell me? Now, you need to tell them with gentleness and respect. You don't come at them with a club. But friends, almost everybody wants to know what's about to happen between Islam and Christianity. You let them know they will never be able to watch the news the same way again in their life. And when I go in and do a prophecy seminar in a city, I know that after we leave, they're going to be sharing it with everybody around, and there are going to be people all over that city who can never watch the news without thinking about Jesus again. <laughs> I love that. So next, we're going to pick up the times of Daniel 11 and 12, the 1290, the 1335, the 1260, and the 2300, on how they all fit together. And you will learn new things in that. We're also going to pick up tomorrow why atheistic communism is not Daniel 11's king of the south, but it is the power from Revelation 11, which is spiritually called Sodom, Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. So you want to be there for that. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for your word again today. Thank you for Jesus who's made it possible for us to not be able to lose if we're trusting in you. And Lord... Help us to be loving and kind and share your word. In Jesus' name, amen.